Hi, this is Ben Lowell with Back to the Bible Canada, and welcome to Truth and Life Today. Today we're with Dr. John Newfeld again, and we're going to be talking about the issue of the Bible. Uh, but just to give you a bit of information about Truth and Life Today, you can see it every week on our podcast on iTunes at Truth and Life Today, uh, through our YouTube channel, or at backtothebible.ca, where you can also submit your questions as well. Uh, but today, welcome, Dr. Newfeld. And you. Uh, we look forward to uh, answering some of the questions people have sent in about the Bible, mm-hmm. uh, which I think is a, uh, is a critical uh, uh, topic in our day and age when there's so much uh, uh, speculation about what the Bible is all, all about, really, what the validity of the Bible is all about. And so let me ask you this question, because it's an interesting one. Uh, what should we think about the Torah or what the role of the Torah is for, for Christians? Yeah, I wonder whether we need to start by just talking about you know, the, ner- the, the word Torah. Yeah, yeah. Um, I know that's the, the Jewish way of referring to the first five books of the Bible. Um, you know, it means instruction or law. I mean, sometimes uh, Christians have used the word Pentateuch, yeah. penta meaning five, right? So, you know, there's the first five books of the Bible. I, I know that because German was my first language. So we just talked about uh, not Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, uh, we just simply said 1st, 2nd, 3rd, 4th, and 5th Moses, which is how yeah. you do it in the German Bible. So there are a number of different ways of referring to the first five books that we have. They are the books that are written by Moses, mm-hmm. and they constitute what we call the law. Yeah. So, you know, I think the real question is, what is the relationship of the believer to the law, and how do we take that? How do we apply that? Because, you know, we all know that when we read some of the passages of Scripture, then, you know, we get Paul speaking about that we are no longer under the law, but we're under grace. And so some people take that to mean, well, does that mean we throw the first five books away? So I think there's a general confusion, a number of people that just don't understand, how do we actually handle that? And I think, Ben, that's what's behind that question. So, so how do we look at that then? How do we understand the five books, the Torah, the Pentateuch? Uh, what is the impact it has on our daily walk? Yeah. So the book of Genesis, I think, is much easier to deal with because it's, you know, historical narrative. So we've got narrative that's happening, you know, everything from, you know, the stories of, you know, the flood all the way, you know, creation flood all the way into Abraham and the special people of God. So that's easy to track with. And even Genesis 12 and Genesis 15 are both a covenant with Abraham, which tell us that the covenant with God is by faith. So we can take that straight up and apply that to our own lives. And I don't think that's where the problem lies. It's with book two, three, four, and five. That's, that's where the problem <laughs> where, really where is. The, where the tough slugging comes yeah, in. Eh? That's right. Yeah. You know, everyone says, you know, I started reading my Bible. I got to Leviticus and then everything ground to a halt. Right? <laughs> so there's that. So I, let me try to help the, the, the person who's wondering what I do with this to try to divide up the law a little bit so that we might get some help. Um, I, I know that there are certain commands in the Old Testament law that you look at it and say, well, what's that got to do with me? And so you have everything from what do you do with bodily discharges? What do you do with mildew found in the house? You've got passages that deal with everything from, you know, you're not allowed to wear clothing that has two kinds of cloth interwoven with one another. Mm-hmm. And then the next verse will say, you know, but don't lie with a man as, as one lies with a woman. And so people will say, you know, I mean, Do we throw all of this out? Do we keep some of it? I mean, we're confused about it. So I think there's a way of helping believers, and here's the way I think we do it. Uh, Number one, we might look at certain laws as ceremonial laws that deal with Israel only. Uh, uh, Those would be civil laws, I'm sorry. Civil laws, they deal only with Israel. 
So, so you've got certain laws that are Israel's constitution. So, so the reason why they're not to have two types of cloth in a, in a piece of clothing is to say, you are never to mix with the Gentiles around you. You're not allowed to eat unclean food because Gentiles eat unclean food and you're supposed to eat food that makes you feel distinct and set apart from the nations. So these are commands that are specifically given to Israel and are not to be translated into our lives. Uh, then there are others that are what we call ceremonial laws. So I've talked about civil laws. There are ceremonial laws. And those ceremonial laws are different because those are laws that deal with the worship of God. So you've got all the stuff that happens in the temple and the sacrificing of animals and all of that kind of stuff. I always say, you know, 21 things to do with animal entrails that you didn't know about, <laughs> right? So it's all there. But when you know what happened in Christ, you'll find out how Christ has fulfilled the need to repeat the ceremonial law. So it's not done away with, but it's fulfilled in the ministry of Jesus on his death on the cross. Then you have other laws that we would simply say are straight out moral laws. You know, they're things that would apply to us. Do not commit adultery. Don't worship other gods. Mm -hmm. I mean, all those kinds of things. And we say we apply them directly. So, you know, a believer today will say, well, clearly in ancient Israel, they weren't parsing those things out. You know, they, they were actually thinking about doing all of them, and, and rightly so. But today, now that Christ has come and we're Gentile believers, how do we know the difference? And the answer is the New Testament helps us. Yeah. You know, the New Testament shows us which are the moral laws that are, that are to be kept by believers and which are things that were civil laws that are specific only to Israel. I mean, a great example, I think, is circumcision. So okay. circumcision is required of Jewish men. But it's not required of Gentile men. And the Bible in the New Testament tells us why. And if we read carefully, we'll get the correct perspective on the Old Testament law. So I think that's it. The other thing that I just need to say before we end this discussion, Ben, is that I kind of think that the Old Testament law never taught justification by works. It okay. taught people, rather, to understand how sinful they were and to call on God for mercy. But how that mercy would come is not revealed until we have Christ. So the law can still function in that way. It can condemn us in our sins so that we would repent and turn to Christ. But the whole Bible is the whole picture, right? You can't have one without the other. We have a lot of people, and I know we've talked about this before, who, who will look at the New Testament and only emphasize the New Testament yeah. and believe that the Old Testament, and I know I have feelings about the Old and the New, yeah. but the Old Testament as well is something that really doesn't pertain to us at all. Yeah, Jesus makes it very clear in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, uh, verses 18, I think it is. And, and there he says, you know, um, that he talks about the law and the prophets. And don't think that I've come to, to do away with the law. I've come yeah. to fulfill it. So I would say, look, you'll never understand the New Testament until you understand the Old Testament. You know, Jesus' sacrifice on the cross makes no sense at all until you understand how sacrifice functions in the Old Testament and why without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. Indeed, yeah. I mean, we might go to the Passover and say, I mean, what, you know, if you don't have the Passover, you don't understand how Christ's blood makes the avenging angel of God pass over us. So yeah. all those images from the Old Testament make sense of the life of, and the sacrifice of Jesus. Let me ask you uh, a little bit of a personal question because it's out of my own personal experience. Uh, my son goes to a Christian university and uh, was in a class recently uh, where they're talking all about the uh, demythologizing uh, of Scripture. 
taking out the miracles and saying that they really weren't important, they really didn't happen, uh, they were more of a response to storytelling and culture and that kind of thing. Can I ask you, like, what do you think about that? Where is this whole demythologizing thing? Where does it lead us to? Yeah. I, I might start by saying, where did it come from? Yeah. And uh, as a matter of fact, we know where it comes from. It comes from Germany. Uh, it comes from scholars like a man named Rudolf Boltmann, uh, who was the first demythologizer. And it also comes from this whole idea that you have, you know, getting back to the historical Jesus, which became a passion in the early 20th century. So the idea is if you, we, we pull all the myths out, which are the miracles of Jesus, yeah. what are we left with? <laughs> you know, the answer is nothing. Yeah. But, but, you know, sometimes when believers hear this today, they keep thinking, well, what do these liberal scholars know that we don't know? Yeah. So if, if people say, we know for certain this is a myth, how do we know that? So, and I think the answer is nothing historical. I mean, it's not as if these liberal scholars have found something in archaeological digs or in some ancient text which leads them to believe that the miracles aren't true. That's just not what's happened. What actually happened is we had something in Europe called the Enlightenment, mm -hmm. in which individuals began to argue that miracles were impossible, and they were essentially naturalists. They did not believe in God. And so they said, look, if we take away the miracles, what are we left with? So they wanted a Christianity that was devoid of miracles. Mm -hmm. But if you want a Christianity devoid of miracles, well, you don't have the cross, you don't have the resurrection, you don't even have creation. Yeah. I mean, everything's a miracle in Scripture. So the reality is, whenever you hear someone saying we're going to demythologize the Scripture, I mean, hear a little hint in your mind that says, you know, I know what's going on here. This is an unbeliever speaking. Because truly, Ben, that's what's going on. It is an unbeliever. So when we talk about those types of things, when we talk about uh, the Old Testament, the New Testament, we talk about uh, things like demythologizing and things of that nature, I think it really points us to how incredibly important it is for the individual follower of Jesus to take the Bible seriously. Yeah, I, I think if we would learn to take the Bible the way it's written. Yeah. Um, because it is an authentic document. Um, the more that we're discovering archaeologically, uh, the more we are coming to realize that for a great many archaeologists who try to you know, replay what is the history of the ancient Near East, I've spoken to more than one scholar, even non-Christian scholars who have saying that they're coming to realize that the Bible narrative is a baseline for Near Eastern studies. See, many of us in North America haven't heard the news yet, yeah. of how authentic the Scripture actually are. So, I mean, for instance, I know that, you know, CNN has got this whole thing about Jesus and fact and fiction and all that kind of stuff that's going on, but they're not playing on genuine facts. They're simply looking at what certain scholars have said. And we always say, why are scholars saying that? That's a far more important a question than what are they saying? Yeah. Why are they saying it rather than what are they saying? And most of the time when we find people saying scandalous things about the Bible, if we ask why are they saying it, is because they've got a presupposition. And the presupposition says, I don't believe that miracles happen. Mm -hmm. I don't have evidence that they don't happen, but I don't believe it. And I start with that presupposition. And then once you have that presupposition, that's when you start disbelieving the Bible narrative. I would argue that for believers who know that, look, there's a real created universe. How did that get here? Something came from nothing. Yeah. What we're talking about is a miracle. Yeah. 
And so if we only thought about it, we'd recognize that you can't have the story of God without the story of miracles. Once you believe that miracles are possible, then read the Bible from that framework, and it begins to make sense. Yeah. So I'm going to argue that anyone who has faith and believes mm-hmm. has a greater understanding of Scripture than this, you know, erudite philosopher or, you know, or, or so-called biblical scholar, you know, who, who just disbelieves from the outset. Yeah. What, what do you think it means uh, for a Christian to be a biblical thinker? What would that look like? Yeah, I mean, often we talk about having a biblical worldview. Yeah. And um, I, I think that all of our thought systems... So if you can imagine everything that we see, Ben, we, we see through a grid. Yeah. Um, you know, we don't just observe the world. Every human being asks, what does the world mean? What am I looking at? Why is it this way? And, you know, for, for people thinking biblically, they begin to think from the basis of God's creative universe. God creates. He is the creator of all things and therefore is the explanation of all things. It's interesting that Colossians tells us that in Christ all things hold together. In other words, the atoms don't fly apart because Christ, moment by moment, is holding them together. Were he to take his hand from them, all physical reality would cease to exist. So there is no physical reality without a divine intervention moment by moment. I mean, I think that's biblical thinking, and that's viewing the world from the perspective of having been informed by the Bible. Uh, and, and then, you know, I, I might argue that one of the things that inform a Bible reader as well is the whole idea of the sovereignty of God, that God rules over all. So I stop thinking about life being a series of accidents or, you know, you know, freak occurrences that happen side by side. And I rather now see God actively always at work in everything in my life. Yeah. Nothing happens by chance. Providence rules over all. I think that's biblical thinking as well. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, we were sharing in a, uh, uh, a team devotional, uh, and uh, uh, the point that was brought out there was the fact that you know we're so willing to allow God to uh, trust Him for our souls, but so unwilling to allow Him to deal with the small things of day-to-day living. And isn't that interesting that we can we can allow Him to deal with the big stuff, but it's the small stuff we don't trust Him with. And I do think that one of the reasons, I mean, philosophically, a lot of believers will say, yeah, well, you know, I guess I really do trust him. Mm-hmm. But then when it comes down to it, I, I find it hard again. I think the answer to that dilemma is you've got to get your nose back in the book daily. Just start reading. Have a plan to read through the entire scripture and allow the thoughts of God constantly to refresh your soul. It will be amazing, you know, how we begin to think biblically simply by virtue of the fact that we're reading every single day. I I don't know there's anything more that we can say to people, but just keep reading and never stop. You know, it brings me to a question that was asked about uh, uh, what, who would be the appropriate teacher? Uh, do we depend upon uh, seminary uh, graduates to do our teaching? Is that the only people we can depend upon uh, for faithful teaching? Or how would you see that? Yeah, there's really two questions in that. I mean, one is the whole question of seminary and its importance. Yeah. And, and I would say of seminaries, you know, there are seminaries and there are seminaries. Yeah. I mean, there are seminaries that begin by believing that the Bible is the inerrant Word of God, and every yeah. word can be trusted. And what we're trying to help our students to do is not only understand its meaning, but to believe its meaning at every level. Now, if you're a seminary like that, 
I mean, you know, sky's the limit. You yeah. can just keep on going. There are a remarkable group of seminaries all throughout North America in which at the very outset you'll have uh, teachers like what you were talking about with, uh, with your own son, yeah. you know, who says, you know, we're going to demythologize the text. So you have in a, you know, a university or a Christian university or a seminary, you have these profs who are unbelievers from the start. And they were in seminaries all over the place. Mm-hmm. So, you know, my, my argument would be if you go to seminary, um, first of all, you should know what that seminary is all about before you get there. Yeah. And then secondly, if you go to a seminary, as I did, uh, which was a very liberal seminary, then you ought to have a place to put your feet down. You ought to have bedrock somewhere mm-hmm. where you can check what you're learning. So yeah. that's what I would say about seminaries. You know, there's seminaries that are seminaries. So, yeah. so that'd be my first thing. I guess the other thing that I would say is, listen, the Holy Spirit... Um, and a Bible reader who carefully reads, and the Holy Spirit is constantly at work to bring our pride level down, you know? So, yeah. you know, we're going to find out how sinful I actually am when I read the Scripture. I'm going to find out that God's far more glorious than I actually thought by reading the Scripture. And, you know, my, my, my sinful self is going to want to reject that. But the Holy Spirit will work to bring humility into my own heart. And, uh, and I will begin to take joy in what I'm reading. So I'm going to argue that there are still been a lot of people who've never gone to seminary who actually understand the Bible better than a seminary grad. And I'm not denigrating seminaries. I believe in them. Yep. But I have a, I'd like to tell you a little story. I was graduating from seminary. It was my last month. And I was finishing off all my finals, and I was finishing off all my papers, and everything else needed to be done. I'm sitting in a coffee shop next to a fellow seminary student who's graduating when I am. And my fellow student says, John, how many books are there in the Bible again? And I, and I was stunned. I said, what, what are you asking? He said, well, you're the Bible guy. I don't know stuff like that. Here's a guy graduating from seminary, Ben. He wouldn't know how many books are in the Bible. He wouldn't know, you know his Bible drill of saying the Bible books in order that, yeah. you know, that a Sunday school kid would know. But this would, guy would be able to tell you what is the you know, metaphysical ground of being. Hmm. You know, so, so I... You know, I, I again say I'm thankful when seminaries are Bible-believing who teach us in the original languages and teach us how to handle the text. But I do know that not all seminaries are seminaries. Yeah. You know, it, it's interesting when we talk about this because, uh, you know, in essence what we're saying is, you know, the piece of paper really doesn't mean very much. If you have a credential on the back of your wall that says you graduated from here, it's really understanding uh, the perspective of the person, how deeply have they embedded their lives into the Word of God. Amen. And we see that from church to church as well. What advice might you give to someone who's looking for a church? I would say... Get your list a lot shorter than it already is. Yeah. You know, get a short list, and the short list looks like this. Is there, when I attend church, will they ask me to open my Bible mm-hmm. and pay attention to what's being said and apply it to my lives? Yeah. Because if you ask a lot of people who came from church and say, you know, what text of the Bible did you study today? They'll say, well, I don't know. Yeah. See, that, that should already signal you that maybe the authority of the preacher is taking precedence over the authority of Scripture. So, you know, you've got to have a place where the Scripture is first. I mean, I'd also want a place where the worship is rich and full. And thirdly, I'd want a place that is actively training me to use my spiritual gifts to serve in some fashion so that I can not only be a, you know, a taker in of God's Word, but I can actually serve in some place. 
I mean, really, I mean, after those three things, I, yeah. you know, evangelism, clearly, that would make the list. Um, but, you know, there's not much after that. Yeah. Yeah. So what would you say to the person who's a, who's a new believer yeah. and is, is forging out on their journey with Christ? What is the priority of Scripture for that person? Yeah. You know, I, I'll tell a new believer very quickly, you know, the church you go to, have a look around. How many people are carrying a Bible into the service? They'll tell yeah. you how important the Bible is there. Interesting. Yeah, Interesting. it's just very simple because when you're getting Bible teaching, the preacher often will refer you back to the text. So you have people there, I mean, they're looking down and they're saying, oh yeah, there it is, you know. And But there are lots of other people where the guy just comes and he quotes his verse here and there. And there's no reason to have your Bible with you because there's nothing to take home with you yeah. that you can look at again and say, boy, I see how this works out in my life. So I would say there's a simple test. Have a look around. Does How many people actually carry a Bible? I, I get it. Yeah. We're in the day where people have their cell phones and all sorts of stuff yeah. where they read the Bible out of. But, you know, still, I, I would say that's not a bad little test that you can use. So much more to say yeah. about the Word of God. But thanks so much, Dr. John, for all that you provided for us today. Uh, we're looking forward to the next time when we meet together to talk about marriage, adultery, and divorce right here on Truth and Life Today. We hope you're enjoying the new Truth in Life Today show with Dr. John Newfeld. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode each week. But we want you to be involved in the show. To submit your own personal questions to Dr. John, you can email us at info at backtothebible.ca or find us on Facebook by searching Truth in Life Today.